Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through, actually through verse 5. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Be seated. In last week's message, we gave an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We mentioned then that in this sermon it was was taught uh, primarily to Jesus' disciples. And yet the scripture says that the crowds that were following him, wanting him to do miracles for them, they were nearby and they did overhear the sermon because we are told at the end of the sermon, that the crowd was amazed. So they did hear his Sermon on the Mount. And what were they amazed about? They were amazed that Jesus taught unlike what they were used to hearing. It says he taught them with authority, not like the scribes. He understood in in that regard, and teaching with authority uh, conveys the, the The fact that what I have to say, the one who teaches with authority, ought to be listened to. And seeing that Jesus is the Lord God, Jesus has the ability to command and to elicit and work in people's lives because he is God. And so that those who hear, who have the ears to hear, that spirit of Christ can go forth and accomplish the things that he preached on uh, and is desiring to see in those people's lives. Although those whom Jesus we see blesses are indeed blessed. And Jesus is the one who can bless people. As I mentioned in the sermon uh, last week, that the Sermon on the Mount is not about what do I have to do to get into heaven? It's more about uh, how it's a wonderful display of what it means to be a Christian. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is a characteristic or a display of what the Christian life is all about. As I've often said, words mean what they mean in their context, correct? And if one were to do a a word study of the word blessed, uh, you will find, and we'll just mention several verses, you're going to find that when the word blessed is used, particularly in the New Testament, it conveys one being happy and one being privileged. To be blessed means to be truly happy and to be in a privileged state. In other words, for example, Revelation 20, verse 6, refers to those who, he says, are blessed, who participate in the first resurrection, over which the second death has no power over them. Now, in other preaching, I've mentioned what that first resurrection is. The first resurrection in Scripture is a spiritual resurrection. It is being born again of God. And when you're born again of God, you have nothing to fear of judgment. You have nothing to fear of death. It has no power over us. Death has been defeated in the life of the Christian. And therefore, the one who has experienced the first resurrection is a blessed person. We have seen in other messages uh, that essentially that being Part of that first resurrection, then, is being a Christian. Revelation also refers to those uh, of the Lord who are blessed who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that great day when, when he gathers all his people, what a blessed state that will be for all of us to be gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
We see that blessed, the scripture says in, in Revelation 14, blessed are those who die in the Lord, who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in this regard, James refers to those um, also are blessed who not only hear the words of God, but do the words of God. Blessed are those who experience, notice how James 1 says, blessed are those who experience trials. In other words, happy is the man who endures trials. You may find that hard to imagine, right? Because he likes to go through the trials. But what is the purpose of those trials? Why does the scripture say, count it all joy, brother, when you fall into various trials? Because it says those trials produce endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be uh, sanctified. Meaning, and to be sanctified is being blessed, is it not? In Titus, we're told that those who look for the coming of Christ are said to be looking for, and here's the phrase, they're looking for the blessed hope. The, the, blessed, the blessed hope that when Christ comes, that is the culmination of history. And when Jesus Christ comes, we're told in the scriptures, he's coming. Did not Jesus say in John 14 that he says, I go away. And when I go away, I'm going away to prepare a mansion for you. And if I go away, I will come again to receive you to myself. He's coming back for us. And therefore, uh, in we may never see that second coming, okay? But understand this, it is still a blessed hope. So since the second coming is the finality to human existence as we know it, and we go into judgment, when you, whenever you and I die, well, it might as well be in Jesus having come, right? Because there is, uh, in our death, that's it. And we will be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a blessed hope. And it's called a blessed hope because it's a privileged state. Romans chapter 4 refers to those who are blessed of the Lord who have their sins forgiven. And therefore, John says that blessed are those also who have believed in him, even though they have never seen him. Remember, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe Jesus is raised from the dead unless I can touch him. Unless I can feel those uh, his flesh, I won't believe it. He does appear to Thomas, and then Thomas touches him, and he falls down and worships, worships Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, you know, Thomas... Because you have seen, you have believed. But blessed are those who have never seen and yet have believed. By faith, we receive a blessing when we remain steadfast. We believe that the scripture is true. We've never seen anyone rise from the dead, but we believe the scripture to be true. And because we believe it to be true and we trust in him, we are blessed by God as a result. Now, in these Beatitudes, and that's what they're called, the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus is giving here, uh, we're going to concentrate on three of them today. First of all, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, or another term for the meek, blessed are the humble or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean fundamentally? We took a little cursory look at how the word blessed is used in the New Testament. But to be blessed by God is really to be genuinely happy. And I trust you, Saul, that it means to be blessed of God means to be in a privileged status. 
to be genuinely happy, to be privileged. Now, you and I, we were created in the image of God. Man is unique of all the creatures of God. We are not an animal. What separates us from the animal world is the fact that we have been made in the image of God. And therefore, we were made to have fellowship with God. And and being made to have fellowship with God is means this. The only person who is truly happy in life is, and the only person who has genuine meaning in life is the one who's blessed of God. And the only person who is genuinely happy is the one who walks in obedience, who comes to Christ and walks in obedience to him. You see, by, by the fact that you and I were created in the image of God, we have a God consciousness. That's why the scripture says God has revealed himself in the general creation. He says his divine power is clearly seen and therefore we are without excuse in believing in God by just virtue of the creation. And we cannot escape that God consciousness. And therefore we, um, uh, the human being, finds or is, is capable of being depressed not having a meaning in life. And that meaning in life, that desire to see your life be fulfilled, to have purpose, can only be fulfilled when we walk in conformity with the Lord. In being in a right state with Christ. I mean, that was the very... I mean, I stand among you as one who, as a young person... Going off to college, I wasn't a Christian. And the, the glaring thing about me was there was no meaning in life. There was a great emptiness. And when the Lord, by his grace, came to me, the immediate thing was when I, gave, I remember praying and giving my life to the Lord Jesus, not knowing much, there wasn't any glaring lights or anything like that. It didn't happen that way. But I will tell you this. It was subtle. Within days, all of a sudden, the emptiness was gone. It was gone. And, and now I knew, though I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible, I didn't understand why I was here. And now there was a purpose it was, I can tell you this, it wasn't that I decided I was going to be a preacher that day. No, that was not, it never occurred to me because that is not where I pursued it originally. It did show up in letters to family members. Something, they said, we don't know what happened to you, but we know something happened to you. And so we were made to have fellowship with God. And we're only going to be happy uh, when we find that meaning in Christ and we serve Him. We belong to Him. We were made to commune with Him. Joe Moorcraft, I'll take another story since I'm known to take Joe's stories. <laughs> he, he talks, and it's a great one. He says a railroad, I mean... A, <clears throat> A railroad engine does well as long as it travels on the track. He talks about the train going out in the west and wanting to wander out there with the deer and the antelope and wants to get off the track. You get the train off the track, you ain't going to go far, right? Because the train is designed to stay on the track. I mean, he gives that analogy of the fact we will do well when we are in the right relationship with God. And we walk in conformity with him when what Jesus is saying about the Christian life is actually the way we are and how the the Lord works that into our lives. As we're going to see, this blessing, being blessed of the Lord, is not of human origin. Now, we can't make ourselves happy. (laughs) You're to ask people what their desire in life is. The number one thing always comes back to this. It's not to be wealthy. That is not the number one thing among people. 
They they say, I just want to be happy. That is still the number one desire. And you poll people. What do you want out of life? Well, I just want to be happy. Now, we have the right, if we have the right attitude produced by the Spirit, then we therefore manifest the characteristics of being in the kingdom of God. And when we are in the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit then by his power enables us to be holy and to be therefore blessed. You can't bless yourself. A blessing is a byproduct of the Lord working in your life. The world has its recipe for happiness, doesn't it? And it's quite inadequate. It really is. And and it's never really truly obtained. You know, in, in the mindset of the world, to be blessed means to have a lot of material riches. Psalm 10, verse 3, makes this comment. It, says, it refers to the wicked who boast of their heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. They think being happy has to tie it up with what they have, the things that they have. And as soon as that, as we know the scripture says, uh, those who trust in riches are foolish because that wealth can, as the psalm says, can fly away like the bird. You may have it one day, and the next day you can be destitute. In the world's mind, being blessed means to be self-assured, a confident person. One who says, you know, I can do it. My own abilities, I can cut it. And they have this attitude that they are great and that uh, they have this uh, mindset of how important they are. And therefore, they have great esteem of themselves and expect others, therefore, to esteem them as high as they esteem themselves. Now, that's the world's way of thinking. But Jesus has another different type of recipe for happiness. And so what what does he say here? He says, in order to be blessed, in order to be happy, you and I have to first of all recognize our inadequacies. Meaning, poor in spirit. We have to grieve over our sins. That is, mourn over our sins, and we have to be humble and not proud. These are the ones, Jesus says, are blessed. The poor in spirit are the blessed of God, those who mourn, and those who are meek or humble. These are the happy ones, Jesus says. In other words, you're not going to find happiness unless those characteristics are part of your life. Now, in this regard, as we've said, the world's view of happiness is quite uh, fleeting. It's fleeting vanity. It's an illusion. But it is not an illusion what Jesus has to say. It's the real deal. And the Lord's Sermon on the Mount was designed to remove the discouragements of the weak and the poor who receive the gospel. Jesus wanted to assure those who would come to him that they would truly be happy and privileged. And even though they may be the least in the kingdom of heaven, they would still be a blessed people and a privileged people. If one's heart is right with the Lord then one will truly be happy. His sermon was designed to invite souls to Christ and therefore to make way for, we could say, the law to be lived out in their daily lives. And therefore, this way of happiness is opened up to all 
who are willing to walk on the highway that Isaiah talks about. Well, let's look at this highway that Isaiah talks about. Turn with me to Isaiah 35, and let's start at verse 8. We're going to read verse 8 through verse 10. And a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. There will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads, and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Sound any what? Similar to the Sermon on the Mount here, what Jesus is talking about? Of course. A highway, a highway of holiness. The unclean are not going to travel on this. And then you got the imagery of the lion not being there. It's, it's figurative lion. It's a safe highway, in other words. Isaiah 35, 9 says, The redeemed of the Lord, they're all the ones who are walking on this highway. And as Isaiah 35, 10 says, That ransom of the Lord, they will return. They will come with joy to Zion. With everlasting joy on their heads, they are walking on this highway of holiness. They will find gladness. They will find joy. And sorrow and sign will flee away. Is that not what Jesus says? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They will be comforted. I trust that as we go through these Beatitudes of Jesus, we can see how this is a fulfillment, what Jesus is talking about, a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, in part. In his Beatitudes, Jesus is going to give eight characteristics of blessed people, which represent the principal graces of the Christian life. That's why I said he fundamentally gave this sermon to his disciples in the hearing of the multitude to describe to them what it's like once you come to Christ or brought to him in saving faith and how that life will be lived out. Eight characteristics. Happy, blessed, and happy is the one who is poor in spirit. And what does he say? For theirs is the kingdom of God. To whom does the kingdom of God belong? The poor in spirit. Not the materially poor. Not the uh, materially impoverished ones per se. That's not what he's talking about. It's the poor in spirit. In other words, the poor in spirit have come to understand their and being convinced of their spiritual poverty. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. This poverty of spirit is placed first among all the Christian graces, as it ought to be. It's how you and I fundamentally approach our relationship with God, how we even come into the kingdom of God. And that's why he says, for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God, not others. The poor in spirit... In other words, sheds all confidence in his or her own righteousness, and they depend solely upon the merits of Christ applied to them in order to be justified. And this is exactly what the parable of Jesus in Luke 18, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, is all about. So what do we see in that? Remember, the, the Pharisee is very self-assured, is he not? He says, Lord, I am glad. Now, he's also proud. Not only self-assured, 
but he's proud. He's arrogant. He's very condemning because he says, Lord, I am not like that man over here referring to the public or the tax collector. I tithe all the time. I give to the poor. I do all these external religious things, and I'm not like this guy over here. Now, the tax collectors were not, in biblical times, was not a noble profession. And the main thing about it was, it wasn't just because they collected taxes. But one of the things about it was, a tax collector, all that Rome was interested in was for it to get its tax. And it left it up to the tax collector. If he wanted to gouge you, which they often did, he could do so. You may only owe, let's say, I'll put it in America. I will not use Greek denarii, but let's say you owed $100 in taxes. That's what Rome demanded. And the tax collector comes to you and says, give me $200. You go, wait a minute. I don't owe $200. He says, yeah, you do. Either give me the $200 or I'm going to report you to Rome. Do you understand why the tax collectors were despised among the people? Because they did abuse people. And so this, this Pharisee is saying, I'm not like this guy, God. I do all these things. And what does the scripture of the parable say? Here this publican over there, this tax collector... It says he can't even look up to heaven, and he's beating his breast, saying, Have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. He's drawing attention that the publican understood his sins, and he's grieving over his sins. And his only solution is to find mercy in God. And Jesus says, now, who went away justified? And when they answered, well, I guess the publican, he says, well, you've answered correctly. You see, the tax collector is one who, did he not, was poor in spirit. He saw his need, and that's why he cried out for mercy. You and I cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we have the same mentality as the publican. I am unworthy. And so what we see here, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. The gospel is designed to make us all beggars in the light of heaven. There are none who are righteous. There are none who do good. There are none. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There are none of us who arouse ourselves to take hold of thee, the scripture says. Yes, even the, the poor in spirit, here's one of them, they will mourn over their sins. And when they mourn over their sins, what is the, the promise there for those who mourn? They will be comforted. The publican would be comforted. You know, Zacchaeus is another example. He was a tax collector, and he wanted to see Jesus. He climbs up in that sycamore tree, and he, and when he says, Jesus says, come down, Zacchaeus, I want to be at your house. And then he, he understands at, at that point, Zacchaeus uh, says that he's willing to give back all that he ever defrauded from anybody. And Jesus says, truly, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus found comfort with the Lord. All those who understand their spiritual inadequacies, they will be comforted of the Lord. Those who mourn over their sins will be comforted by the Lord. But if you're proud and if you're arrogant, you're not going to be comforted.
and, and you won't belong to the kingdom of God. You know, there are several ways that are different when we're talking about Jesus is blessed or those who mourn. There are different types of mourners in the scriptures. There is a sinful mourning, which actually is the enemy of blessedness. For example, like Esau, selling his birthright for a bowl of pottage. And as scripture says in Hebrews, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not receive it because there wasn't any repentance there, even though he sought it with tears. Judas mourned, Judas mourned over having betrayed innocent Jesus, but he wasn't comforted. He went out and hanged himself. And so there is a sinful type of mourning like Esau, like Judas, but does not lead you to the kingdom of God, does not bring comfort to you. There's also a natural type of mourning as in losing a loved one in death. For example, in Scripture you have that, that great story of Mary and, and, and Martha when their brother Lazarus dies and Jesus delayed deliberately to get there in order for Lazarus to die and, when, and, and so that he could do his greatest miracle among them. But he saw how much Mary and Martha loved their brother and he says, well, Martha, I mean, he will, there, uh, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Well, yes, Lord, but he's dead and it will be on that last day. But we still don't have a brother. And that moved Jesus to weep with Mary and Martha because he saw how much they loved their brother. And they will have great joy when he raises him from the dead. They got immediate comfort uh, in that great miracle that Jesus performed. We're told uh, that Paul says to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, that is, uh, in there in First Thessalonians 4:13. It says there were uh, Christians mourning over the, the death of their loved ones. And they wonder what the, uh, the state will be. And notice here how Paul comforts the Thessalonian Christians. In verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how Jesus is going to descend one day with a great shout and the trumpet of the Lord. And uh, he will bring with him all those that died in Christ. And then all those who are living will be changed instantaneously. And they will all rise up and meet the Lord in the air. So he's talking about those who naturally mourn over the loss of Christian loved ones. We are comforted, how? By the blessed hope of the day of resurrection. That's how Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's another type of mourning. There's a penitent mourning. It's a mourning over one's sins. It is a godly sorrow. In other words, these are God's mourners. These are the people that mourn over the weaknesses of their flesh, their inadequacies, and they live a life of repentance. You know, the godly weep over the sins of others. We read in Psalm 137, verse 1, regarding the captivity of Israel in Babylon. Here's what Psalm 137, 1 says. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There was a great unrest, there was a great mourning, a weeping over because over Zion, the city of God, the people of God, 
Jerusalem had been decimated by the Babylonians. The great temple of Solomon destroyed. Many people killed. And then the remnant brought off into captivity. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept over Zion. Wept over Zion because of the sins of Zion that led to the Lord's chastisement and having the Babylonians conquer them. In Zephaniah, the prophet, in Zephaniah 3, verse 12 says, But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. And in verse 18 it reads, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They come from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. They're weeping over what has happened to the nation and its sins that has led to God's judgment. That's a penitent type of mourning. And therefore, we see uh, it is a, a mourning over the affliction that God brings to those who have sinned. It's a mourning over the sins and the decimating consequences that it brings. You know, speaking of burdens, what do we read in Matthew 23? Jesus coming to the great city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And what are we told in Matthew 23? It says, Jesus wept over the city. Because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. The Messiah had come. He had ridden on a donkey, prophesied by Zechariah, being hailed by the people as the son of David. He was the promised one. Finally, after centuries, he had arrived. But they didn't, as the scripture says, they didn't recognize the day of their visitation. They rejected the Messiah. And Jesus weeps over those who have rejected him because he knows the decimating consequences that is going to come upon Jerusalem in 40 years. It's going to be the city is going to experience a tribulation unlike the world has ever seen. But you see, those who mourn, Jesus says, they shall be comforted. They are happy people. They are a privileged people. And as we mourn over the trials of life, one day, as the scripture says, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, what does it say? He will wipe away all our tears. All those challenges, all those things in life that brought so much distress to us, often because of our own sins, the sins of others, it will be behind us. It will be behind us. And forever we will be in the joy of the Lord. Remember Jesus says uh, when, when he comes back, he will separate the goats from the sheep. And he always says to the, to the righteous, uh, to the believer, he says, and notice this and how he phrases it. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Blessed are they who have that hope. Yes, those who mourn, they will be comforted. And then Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. There in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, this is most interesting because there is an element of temporal blessing here associated with this blessing. And the temporal blessing is this. 
Blessed are the meek or the humble, because that's what the meek are. For they shall inherit the earth. The earth is what they will inherit. That's interesting. You know, in this regard, Proverbs 16, 7 states, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways are pleasing to him, even his enemies. This is a general, a general promise. Now, you may find exceptions of those who persecute, because he's going to talk about those who are persecuted, but we're talking about the general thrust here. Turn with me to to Psalm 37 for a moment. Psalm 37. Actually, that phraseology, inheriting the earth, is right out of the Psalms. This is what Jesus is thinking of when he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Psalm 37, and we're going to take a look at three passages. First at verse 11. It says, but the humble, now I have the New American Standard, which says the humble, if you have the King James, it says, but the meek will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. They will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity as they inherit the land. Blessed are the meek. Look at verse 22, Psalm 37. For those blessed by him will inherit the land. For those cursed by him will be cut off. So this contrast is being drawn by those who inherit. and, And how do you inherit the land? By being meek or humble or gentle. But if you're not, that way, he says, the wicked, they will be cursed, and they'll be cut off from what? Cut off from the land. Then look at verse 29, Psalm 37. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Who are the righteous? But the redeemed of the Lord. Who are the righteous? Not righteous in themselves, but you see, when you come to Christ by having a poor uh, in, uh, being poor in spirit, meaning uh, you recognize your insufficiency, and once you're brought into the kingdom of God, then we practice righteousness. That is the life of the Christian, to practice righteousness in the power of the Spirit, not in self-exertion, but in the power of the Spirit. You know, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, Put it quite well. This is what he said. He says, Meekness, however ridiculed and run down, has a real tendency to promote our health, wealth, comfort, and safety, even in this world. The meek and quiet are observed to live the most easy lives compared with the forward and turbulent. (laughs) You know, the heat, the, the meek, that is, the humble and the gentle, that's who the meek are, are rarely those, um, they're hard to be provoked. They would rather forgive than to exercise revenge. Those who are not uh, hot-headed bring peace, not turmoil. The meek are not those looking for a fight. The meek don't live lives of bitterness. The meek man is not out for self-glory. You know who's said to be the most meek man on the face of the earth? Moses. Turn with me to Numbers 12. Let's start at verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Let's put it that way. They didn't improve of his wife, where she came from. Some believe it was because she was an Ethiopian. 
She may have been a black woman. They didn't, they didn't uh, approve of this marriage. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, or very meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant and against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, As white as snow, as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses Now, did Moses say, that's just too bad. You shouldn't have challenged me. Was that Moses' attitude? Now, here's Moses' attitude. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, oh, God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp. And afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Why why did Miriam become leprous? Because she and her brother Aaron, they had challenged the Lord's anointed. The Lord speaks to us as well, and God says, hold on here. I speak with Moses like no other. I speak to Moses face to face. He's the only man I speak face to face on the earth. And so the Lord showed whose side he was on. But what does it say about Moses? He was the most meek man on the face of the earth. Now, as the meek man, as the humble, Moses was not out for self-glory. Do you recall when God says, I want to send you to Egypt to deliver my people after their 400 years of bondage? And Moses says, not me. Don't send me. No, I'm going to send you. And I'm going to speak to you. No, I can't speak, Lord. Choose somebody else. Moses was not out for self-glory. He didn't even want to go. But the Lord sent him. And all along, the meek, the meek man Moses, always, even when he was challenged with his authority, he always prayed for people. He always interceded on behalf of Israel. I mean, there were times when God was ready to wipe them out. And he says, no, Lord, don't, don't wipe them out. Have mercy on them. And the Lord would have mercy on them. As we talk about this meekness and that the meek shall inherit the land, let's take a look at one last passage. Turn to with me to Psalm 25. Look at verses 9 and 10. Psalm 25, 9 and 10. He leads the humble, that is the meek, is the King James. 
He leads the meek in justice, and he teaches the meek his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So when it talks about the meekness, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the land. When you have this attitude like Moses, you have a desire. And and remember what God said to Miriam and Aaron, or to Aaron. He says, Moses is faithful in my house. He's true to the covenant. See, the meek man or the meek woman is an obedient man and woman to the commands of the Lord. They are faithful in the house of the Lord. And those who are faithful with the covenant of the Lord, what is the promise? They will inherit the land. Their blessing, this is a blessing that has temporal meaning. Meaning right now, life can be better for those who are meek, humble, gentle, not bitter, not hotheads, but are humble. You want to really be happy? You really want to be happy? Then be poor in spirit. Understand your inadequacy. Mourn over your sins. Mourn over the sins of others. And be humble to the point that you are obedient to the Lord. These are the blessed ones. Let us pray.